Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This word in your earmark is brought to you thanks to NordVPN. And remind me once more, what does VPN stand for, Mark? I'm quietly confident that stands for Virtual Private Network. And you're going to explain why. Let me write that down. Virtual private network. <laughs> I think I know what that is. It's a way to keep your data safe on the internet whenever you're logging in either at home or abroad. And VPN, which stands for virtual private network, protects your identity and encrypts your data so that nobody can steal your identity. And at the same time, there's a fun side. It enables you to access the internet via servers in more than 50, count them, 50 different countries. This means you can often sidestep region restrictions and stream movies and TV programs from all around the world. I've been watching a couple of things this week. I've been watching a couple of films this week. I watched The Big Country, which is what they used to call... Uh, and Variety magazine used to call a horse opera, you know, oh, yes. a cowboy film. They used to call them either a ho- horse opera or an ota. <laughs> yes. That's brilliant. Uh, and it's a classic uh, cowboy film starring, well, it's not quite cowboy, it's post-cowboy, um, starring Gregory Peck and Charlton Heston and Gene Simmons. It's very good, actually. And I also watched Woody Allen's Manhattan which is kind of weird to watch nowadays. Anyway. God, it is. It doesn't feel quite right. Really odd. Really odd. Um, But anyway, what they both have in common is that they're both absolutely rescued and made whole by the music. Yeah. In both cases. Elmer Bernstein's, you know, theme tune for the big country. And then uh, George Gershwin. It's Gershwin, isn't it? Man- opening scene. It's black and white, isn't it? It's black and white. Bridges. That oh. opening scene, yeah. And uh, with the, the Scarlet in New York and the fireworks and so forth. And yeah. The sound of Rhapsody in Blue. And it reminded me, both films reminded me, you've got to read Woody Allen's autobiography, Apropos of Nothing. It's really good. And one of the things he says in it was that his favourite bit of making movies is when they've finished shooting it. 
And he goes home with a kind of rough assembly on tape or whatever, uh, and then gets his records out. And I choose the music that makes the film look better. I thought that's a really good point. It is. And yeah. what fun that would be. It, it's the music that makes it look better. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, and in both of those cases of those films, the big country theme and Gershwin in Manhattan, that's absolutely the case. Anyway, that's all I've got to say about movies uh, this week. You can take advantage of a deal where you can try NordVPN by going to nordvpn.com slash your ear. Or just use the code your ear to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and one additional month for free and a bonus gift. And uh, there's uh, it's risk free because there's a thirty back uh, thirty day money back guarantee, which full details of which are underneath this in the show notes. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, in other business, Mark, we've got to draw people's attention to June the 3rd. What's happening we on should, June, the, June 3rd? the 3rd? On the afternoon of June the 3rd, we are returning to West London to occupy the uh, the tented arena of Opera Holland Park. And we're going to talk to uh, to four wonderful authors about various groups that we adore. Among them, John Higgs. We're going to be talking about the Beatles, Leslie Ann Jones on the Stones and and Bob Stanley on the Bee Gees. And we've been twice before, haven't we? I mean, it's a wonderful open-sided uh, auditorium. Sunshine will be guaranteed. It's Still absolutely guaranteed. Uh, booksellers on hand for sign companies, well-stocked bars, comfortable seats, and, yeah, a ton of old rock and roll stories. Actually, I was just looking at Leslie Ann Jones' um, book that she's going to be talking about, the, we're just rereading it, um, the, the Stone Age. And it's just actually pretty much 60 years to the day, isn't it? That's Since the, the Rolling Stones' Stone's first, record. first single came out. Yep. So, yeah, good timing. And it's a brilliant book. Her angle is, is basically to completely ignore the music. And uh, it's barely mentioned that she just focuses about what you learn about the group from the people they're involved with. Mainly, of course, the women. Fantastic right. chapters. Fantastic, really interesting chapters about Marion Faithful and Anita Pallenberg and Mandy Smith. So Mick and, and Brian and Bill and Keith, you know, seen from a woman's point of view. And, and also from the perspective of, you know, PRs and drug dealers, journalists, and assorted hangers-on. And the other thing she does is she concentrates solely on the really, really big moments. So there's a whole chapter about the death of Brian, there's Altamont, there's Mex- uh, Making of Exile on Main Street, France, uh, the debauched 1972 tour, weddings, fallouts, midlife crises. It's, I mean, I, I think it's really good. I'll give you some indication of what a good storyteller she is. But, uh, but I tell you, that she describes Ronnie Wood at one point as beaky, crow-quaffed, and pleat-faced. <laughs> pleat-faced. Pleat-faced, as if his face needs ironing, you know, which, which he does, pleat-faced. That's yeah. the best description, physical description, uh, since the editors of Spy decided that they were going to call Donald Trump, this is years ago, they were going to call him short-fingered vulgarian. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> so funny. Fleet faced is up there with that. Yeah. So that's Lizzie Ann Jones's book. She's going to be talking about the Stones on the 60th yeah. anniversary of their first uh, their first record, and John Hicks talking about the Beatles, James Bond, and uh, Bob Stanley talking about the Bee Gees, and further uh, people to be announced in due course. Make sure you've got your tickets. Link below. 
The Word Podcast, walking the digital dog since 2007. There's two stories I noticed um, just last week, uh, both about how musicians are ripped off. And uh, one is about the late Paul Catamol of, of uh, S Club 7, who very sadly died the other day. And the Guardian obit pointed out that it was Simon Fuller, their manager, rather than S Club 7 members, who, who'd, been, who'd been signed to the Polydor record label. The band were just affiliates, and thus were on a very, very low-earning deal. And, you know, not the multimillionaires that people uh, imagine they might be. Um, and the other piece was in, a, in The Nation. It was talking about the sideman who played on Miles Davis' Kind of Blue, Cannibal Adderley and John Coltrane, Bill Evans, Paul Chambers and Jimmy Cobb, and saying that they all worked for kind of union rates. You know, they did the sessions and... Uh, I think Cobb got a little bit more as he was the drummer and he had to kind of cart his drums. Well, they always there. do. Drummers always, in the days of session fees, always more, get porterage. They used yeah, to portridge. call it. They used to get, you know, five pounds extra or whatever. Yeah, because they've got to get a cab to carry their yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, that's fair enough. Needed, Whereas know. the poor old string bass player is lugging his yes. full <laughs> fiddle on the tube. <laughs> in a pretty bad mood, I imagine. That's true. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> no, uh, Cobb's earnings uh, for, for one of those sessions was $66. So you're assuming that, when was it recorded? 59 or 60? I yeah. can't remember which now. 60, 59. So you're talking about getting, they got about maybe $120 each to be on the on the record, the biggest selling jazz record of all time. And these people are uh, in, the, in the piece or uh, an absolute outcry about how little this is. But I'm thinking, why do people still get so exercised about this? Because that's the deal. It does seem unfair. Obviously, it seems seems they could have got more, but that's the deal that they enter, entered into. And in a lot of cases, particularly with session men, there are certain you know, recordings that you make that kind of make your reputation. And uh, in the case of those guys, and already they were pretty established, actually, most of them, but, I mean, their, their reputation lived forever after that, you know. So it is, it's, don't you think it's, it's bizarre? Well, it's very odd with the, the session man deal <coughs> is, is very odd because we tend to see it in terms of, you know, their contribution to a few, a handful of records yeah. that live on forevermore. And what we don't take note of the fact that they, the overwhelming majority of records that they played on, and this applies to session people, the overwhelming majority of records don't turn out to be big hits at all. But they get paid for them nonetheless. They get their, you know, whatever the session fee is, you get that, whether it's a complete flop or it's something so that it's people are, something, exactly. something people are still playing many years later, and it's really interesting. Um, two stories actually. Jimmy Page, um, who obviously spent some time as a session man in the sixties, and was the kind of first call guitarist for lots of people, and um, he tells a, a long story about about um, playing guitar on on Goldfinger, Shirley Bassey's, you know, Goldfinger, the theme from Goldfinger. And he tells his story about it all being at Abbey Road and and how he'd never forgotten it and how she collapsed at the end after holding a long note. Interestingly, I looked into this when I was writing my book about Abbey Road. It wasn't recorded at Abbey Road. At all. Oh, right. <laughs> He's told this story for years. It wasn't done at Abbey Road. And and it really reminded me that session players have a totally different way of of looking at the work they did. You know, it was just it was a gig. You know, they get they turn they get phoned up on Tuesday night saying you go on Wednesday morning and you do so and so. You know, and they don't even know who it is half the time. 
And but I think also, I'll by say, definition, everything they're recording, they have no idea if it's going to be successful or no not. Idea so, or, so, or, so, no idea. No, no idea. More yeah. to the point, no, not so much they've no idea that it's going to be successful, they've no idea whether it's going to come out or not. Yeah. That's more to the point. Or if and, they're going to end up on it or not on it. Or, and I, I know, think, I think the I'd version send, they're hearing that day is anything like the finished version. I think I sent you the link to the the interview with I can't remember the name of the guy who played Jay guitar. Creighton. Yeah, okay, played guitar. Jay Creighton who played uh, the solo on Peg by Steely Dan. Yes, he did. It was fantastic. And uh, and here he is, you know, many years later, being interviewed in great depth about playing on it and recreating the solo. And it's clearly, in retrospect, it's one of the key moments. On his CV, isn't it? Yeah, it is, <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they carry him around in a sedan chair forty years later for being the guy who played the guitar. Yeah, and being asked to explain how he did it and demonstrated. He, he yeah. said on the day he had no idea. Nobody gave him any indication. You know, nobody said that's the one. That's really good. And he didn't know that it was on the record until he heard it on yeah. in a record shop. You know, so nobody sends you a note saying. Dear, you know, thanks very much for your exemplary playing on this on this track. We've decided that's the one. Here's the here's a copy of the album. They don't bother. Well, it's they also had recorded lots of other people having a crack at that solo, hadn't they? Of course they so, did. So you know, they wouldn't know until they sat down the final analysis and just and just listened to them and thought that's it. So they wouldn't have known actually. No. But it's just it's a total lottery. It's still total lottery, but you know they look at it in terms of lifetimes of work. It, you know, it's, it's gig after gig after gig. Yeah. You know, and if you, if you go back and look at, you know, I mean, it's fascinating to me look, looking at you know sessions in the nineteen thirties at Abbey Road. You know, the kind of um, dance band players they were in there day after day after yeah. day. Just cranking out stuff. You know. So no idea what they were doing, just giving some sheet music. And quite often it would just be a backing track and they, they wouldn't even know who's going well, to Well, in those days, not, not a backing track at all. They just they just played, you yeah. know. It was, it was just the music, you know. But um, there are loads and loads of cases of people. Well, the woman who sang uh, Great Gig in the Sky with Pink Floyd, you know, she turned up on a Sunday. She got double time because it was a Sunday. And then heard it, it playing on the radio. Heard it in a, record, it in a shop. record shop. Yeah. Didn't know at all. Didn't know. And, you know, subsequently there was a legal action many, many years later. And she got kind of co-credit for a sort of composing that bit, which is fair enough, you know. And I, I'm very sympathetic to the case of, you know, featured players, you know, like we've discussed on this yeah. many times. Herbie Flowers on Walk of the Herbie Wild. Flowers, Bobby Valentino, Young at Heart. Actually, it was the one the other day I was thinking of, which is Matthew Fisher, wasn't it? Who, um, who, uh, who, I th- did Matthew Fisher die recently? I think he, he died, he died the other week. And, uh, and so he was the best who who played the, the organ. Hammond organ opening part to White Shade of Pale, which kind of made the record. Absolutely. You know? And, and uh, eventually he won after 40 years, won a court case, didn't he, quite rightly? Well, yeah, but he, he gets part of it, you know, and I, I'm quite sympathetic to that. You know, people who make a very distinctive contribution yeah. uh, to things, you know. But but the way the world works at the moment is, and has worked for many years, is the lion's share of the, you know, the, the profit goes to the the people who wrote the song, you know, which kind of comes back to the, you yeah. know, the, the uh, S Club 7, the Paul Cantermole thing that you're referring to, you know, yeah. that, uh, that, you know, 
they, the, the piece says they were not the multimillionaires that, that the public possibly thought they were. Well, if the public thought they ever entertained the idea that the members of S Club 7 were multimillionaires, the public, the public shouldn't be allowed naive. out without... No. Accompaniment. I've got a supervision. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> think about it. I always it. think that the, the, the thing that reminds me of, of the of the power of the songwriting royalty is Andrew Ridgely. So I mean, Andrew Ridgely would have made, you know, he would have made a fair amount of money, obviously, live performances. I mean, you know, Wham played at Wembley, didn't they, at the end? But I mean, ultimately, I think he only has three songwriting credits, all very sweetly given in by George uh, George Michael, you know, which were Club Tropicana, Wham Rap, and Last Christmas. And Andrew Ridgely, as far as I can see, has had a very, very comfortable life ever since. Well, last Christmas, last Christmas, half, every year, you yeah, know, every <laughs> year. So you know, I don't think he lives a wildly extravagant life, but I think he has a very comfortable one. And uh, based on three half credits of, of, of songs. But, but if you go the members of S Club Seven, two things. They don't write the songs, and, yeah. and there are seven of them. And there are seven of them. So what else? They're, they're not even signed to Polydor. They're signed to Simon Fuller, who is the act that Polydor have signed. And uh, so they really were a long way down the chain. I feel so, some sympathy, but they must have known what they were getting into. And they listen, just thought, well, either I do this or I don't. But here's the, here's the thing. It's, I think it's quite instructive to, to just move it away from music for a moment. Because you know, people do tend to think... Uh, the musicians, they were once associated with these huge hits, which must yeah. have made a lot of money. Therefore, they ought to have a lot of money. And, and if they don't have a lot of money, it's kind of it's because they've been swindled. It's yeah. probably not as simple as that, because we all know loads of people. And, you know, I always say to, to my kids, sound, sound like the old man and the... Old man of the hills here. Yes, dude, uh, another log on the fire. I always say to my children, you have no idea how much money people earn. All you can see is how much they spend. And it's yeah. it, it's a really different thing. And, uh, you know, we, we've no reason to believe that just because there was a lot of money associated with S Club 7 at some point, that it was kind of, that it was reflected in what the, the people who were S Club 7 yeah, made yeah. out of it. Or whether they hung on to it or not, because I I've, I heard a really interesting um, uh, Scott Galloway on a really interesting podcast the other day just talking about money generally, and he made the he, he, the extraordinary statistic that um, that uh, of the of the NBA stars of today and the NBA, you know, the big basketball players, yeah, you know, they're kind of equivalent of Premier League footballers, you know, huge earning, huge earning power. Two thirds of them will be bankrupt in ten years. It's a fact, you know what I mean. So it's nothing. To, it's far less to do with how much you earn, and yes. far more to do with how much of it you hang on to. Which is, yeah, I mean, you see a little bit of that going on in Premier, Premier League football too, don't you? you just, well, you once see you get it. into that thing of spending, you can't stop the spending when the earning isn't coming in anymore. You just can't do it. You can't accept it. You know? So it's it's all the same. It's always the same thing. You know, the tax bill arrives five years later. <laughs> Yeah, by which time people Bites you spent, in the ass. By by which time people have spent the money that you know yeah. the, the tax is based on, you know. So I don't, I don't want it to sound like we got no sympathy at all, you know. But it's the same sympathy as as for any other member of the the public or member of your family or your neighbours, anybody you know, you know that that the people who've got money haven't just earned quite a lot of it. I'm going to talk about musicians here. 
The people who've got money are also the people who've held on to money. They've held on, they've invested it. They stuck it in the back pockets. They've got some talent for money, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, oddly enough, people like Elton John, who's earned incredible amounts of money, but clearly run through it, you know, and then keeps working to get more coming in all the time. You know, he's he's kind of been quite open about this, you know. Completely. That that his his spending habits are absolutely, you know, on the level with his earnings. Flowers was the one, wasn't it? I can remember he indicated that in all his houses, however many houses, it five or something, they have to have fresh flowers in every room every day. In yeah, whether, all the houses. whether he's like, there or not. Even though he might not be there, might be nobody there, but they've still got to have fresh flowers in every room. Absolutely insane. He used to have somebody in his house, I think two people, whose job it was to just wrap presents. Wrap presents. Wrap presents. <laughs> and someone else used to play a fanfare when he got up in the morning, didn't they, on a giant loudspeaker system outside the house to announce that he was up and wandering about in a in a toweling dressing gown. <laughs> now you just hallucinate pastries. Yeah. The Word Podcast, prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. You know, we were talking about Ben Sidron the other week, the yeah. kind of obscure but distinguished keyboard player who played with Steve Miller. But, you know, it, 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 we, I discovered that he'd made 32 albums. That's right. 32 yeah. albums that nobody had bought, but they were all available on streaming. And I was saying what a wonderful thing that is, you know, that, that – Streaming has kind of ensured that these things just don't slip away. They're there, you know. So if you catch, if you decide you want to catch up with Ben Sidron, you can do that yeah, nowadays. You can start now. You can start now. Anyway, yesterday I went wandering around the Barbican uh, in the city of London, and because I was trying to find out, I was reading a really interesting book called The Lodger, which is about when Shakespeare actually lived. In Cripplegate, near Cripplegate, oh, um, uh, he was a, he was a tenant there, and he was involved in a court case, and so it's one of the very few bits of historical evidence for here he was at a particular time, here he is speaking. Anyway, and I found myself standing outside and looking at the church, which which is St Giles Cripplegate. Oh, do you fantastic. know? Do you know that? Know, yeah, yeah. So there, there's been a church on that site, I think, for 800 years or something like that. It's extraordinary, and obviously, it's you know, different churches and Great Fire of London, and you know, and so forth. But anyway, there's a church there, and it got me thinking about one of my personal favourite characters in popular music. Well. Say that again. Not a favourite character, but a very, very, very musician who's Jack Nietzsche. So Jack Nietzsche, no longer with us, died in 2000. But, um, you know, was famous in Hollywood as a as kind of a ranger and uh, multi-instrumentalist. Well, a ranger, piano player, was yeah, absolutely a songwriter. Could... So he did all those things. And so he never kind of, if had he done one of those things constantly, he might be better known. But he isn't that well known, really. Uh, well, what? But I know him, you know, because yeah. he, he famously, a wonderful surf instrumental called The Lonely Surfer, which I do recommend yeah. to absolutely anybody. He arranged a record that I think is a masterpiece, which I was listening to not long ago, which is Move Over Darling by Doris. Oh, yes, fantastic. Doris Brilliant arrangement. Fantastic orchestration. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And then he worked with Phil Spector, so he arranged most of Phil Spector's big hits, you know. Um and through Phil Spector, he got to know the Stones, 
And so the two of them, I think Spectre and Jack Nietzsche are both on little by little on the, yeah. on, you know, early on in the Stones career. But then we're involved in loads of things. If you look on the, on the credits of Stones albums, you'll see him there very often contributing maracas or, you know, piano or whatever. And uh, very instrumental in things like, um, um, have you seen your mother, baby? You know, so it, so it's when the Stones start to become less R and B and start to become a bit more kind of, I don't know how you describe it, kind of baroque. You know, he he was kind of involved in 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 that kind of thing. It did all sorts of stuff, and then uh, worked with Neil Young, and uh, was a kind of occasional member of Neil Young's band and. Uh, with Neil Young on Harvest. That's and right. he's, he's the man who orchestrated A Man Needs a Maid, which is on Harvest, yeah. which is recorded, strangely enough, in, I think in Barking Town Hall in East London, you know, which is not what you think about a record no, like that. Yeah. And, and so at the time he was kind of the man with the golden touch and he could do anything. And... Uh, and Elliot Roberts, who was Neil Young's manager at the time, said, what would you like to do, Jack? He said, um, I want to make an orchestral record. I want to make a kind of classical record. <laughs> and so this being 1971, 72 or whatever, they said, okay, fine. And so Elliot Roberts just fixed up. And next thing he knew, Jack Nietzsche was standing in the church of St. Giles Cripplegate in London facing the London Symphony Orchestra, who all had in front of them in their sheet music this thing that Jack had written, this kind of orchestral suite. And all of them thinking, who is this guy? Who is well, this? We're getting paid. We're well, absolutely. Session, they don't come care. Who is this joke? They don't exactly. care. And yeah. um, anyway, they recorded it probably in maybe two days. It might be in just one. And this record is one of those records that entered the mythology of Warner Brothers Records as being one of the lowest-selling records of all oh, time. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I think there were only 2,000 copies pressed of it. And, it, you know, it was just... What was it called again? It was just called St. Giles Cripplegate. St. Giles Cripplegate. That's the name of the record. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> kind of disappeared without trace. Uh, Jack Nietzsche went on to produce Mick DeVille and... Um, and Graham, he did Graham, Graham Parker, Parker didn't he? greatest squeezing record, out the sparks, squeezing out sparks. Yeah. He he married Buffy San Marie. He he wrote up that he and the two of them wrote up where we belong. You know, yeah. which was obviously huge hit for Officer and a Gentleman. Anyway, did all kinds of things, and it was a person with clearly all kinds of personal problems. I I, I wouldn't claim him as a hero at all. And he died in two thousand. But here's the point. I stood in front of St. Giles Cripplegate yesterday, looked up at this place and thought, I wonder if that record is on Spotify. And got out my phone, got out my phone, (laughs) couple of clicks, there it is. I'm listening to it. So you could stand there and actually listen to it while you were there. Isn't that wonderful? It's, I think that's Isn't wonderful. In the modern world, of course. Absolutely. You know, it so, really is. So people, you know, bitch about streaming services, whatever. Well, that's the upside, you know. It's there forever. It is. That's if that's, absolutely if that's what you want. Yeah. You're listening to The Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. Mark, you're the Bob Dylan correspondent. Shadow Kingdom. 
What's it all about? What's it all about? Well, Shadow Kingdom was, uh, I mean, it all happened during COVID, didn't it? Dylan, who was permanently touring, could no longer tour. And frustrated by this, he decided to put on a show which was billed as being, the suggestion was it was going to be a live pay-to-view performance. Uh, And he was going to, you know, just do a version uh, of of various of his old songs. So he did, and he got this uh, all-acoustic band, and this was in 2021. And we watched it. It was $25 to watch, and I thought it was really good. And uh, it wasn't live, and very soon you realised that it must have been pre-recorded because actually some of it clearly was mimed, but it didn't matter. It was stage, it was a stage set, it was in a kind of 1950s kind of, you know, blues bar with these fabulously cool actors sitting around drinking bourbon, you know. And it was really good. It was just a very, very polished kind of video performance. So lovely old songs, Wicked Messenger, When I Paint My Masterpiece, Queen Jane, Pledging My Time, or oh, the really nice selection of really old songs. It was very like the kind of the unplugged record. But anyway, it was a one-off and everybody watched it on um, on on the pay-per-view and then it was kind of gone. And now it's coming out on, on record. For some reason, a lot of people seem to be incensed about this, saying, you know, why are they doing this? You know, this was a kind of magical one-off thing and they're just, you know, exploiting it and making money. I mean, why shouldn't they? And why wouldn't you want one? Do you know what I mean? Wouldn't, wouldn't you want a copy of a record like that? It was beautifully recorded. Fantastic acoustic band. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very in the market for it. So what's the fuss about? I suppose, the, I suppose the fuss is people like to feel that some things are... Sacrosanct and, Sacrosanct, yeah, and they're yeah. one off, and they they and they're, they're one off. Going to be I was there, and nobody else, you know, can can. But share. then they weren't there because it was a you know it was a digital well, event, wasn't it? I mean, I I think people are getting pretty precious about it. <laughs> to be honest, don't you? Well, yeah, okay, but that's uh, well, it's just anything on you know anything nowadays. There's a blowback, isn't there, of some yeah. kind? You know, people people don't feel happy unless they're objecting to something. Yeah. Well, at least, at least you've explained to me what it is. Yeah. And I shall look forward to it it's appearing. There. It's a great, it's a, it was a fantastic concert. It was really worth having. Brilliant. Did you see the good news about Sam Branson, Richard Branson's son? Oh, God, I did. Sam Branson <laughs> is, is announced that, uh, you know, good news, I'm starting a music career. Is that right? Hey! Well, I mean, he has been a musician for a while, but, I mean, the th- there are various things about this. I mean, I feel a certain amount of sympathy for anybody who has a famous... Uh, uh, you know, a, fam- a famous parent, particularly their f- a famous parent is, a, is a, a, a musician. But, I mean, I don't know. Also, 37 years old. Yes, quite. Okay, answer, answer me this. How many musicians started? I mean, I think Leonard Cohen was 33 when he started, which was considered to be massively aged. I think Ian Dury was about 35 when he had success. Right. Debbie Harry genuinely was 33 when she started out. But that is old. And Neil Tennant actually was 30, wasn't he, when he had yeah, the first, yeah. when the Pet Shop Boys were the first hit. But that's considered to be you, you. You're considered to have kind of snuck in under the wire there and been very lucky. So to start your career, age 37, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I think it strongly suggests. Luck. It strongly suggests. You know, people do things later nowadays, generally in life, yeah. don't they? Um, yeah. You know, and you can see those through the history of rock and roll. You know, people start as teenagers, and then the people in their twenties, then late twenties, then thirties, and so forth. But it strongly suggests if somebody at the age of 37 is turning around and going, good news, here, here I come with my, with my um, music career, it strongly suggests they should have got out of bed earlier, shouldn't they? Absolutely. Throughout their lives. 
they've just been lying yeah. about <laughs> for a great deal of time. I'm but just it, reading this Lucinda Williams memoir at the moment, which is just, just coming out. And, uh, you know, there she is, the age of, whatever, 13, 14 in little bands, the age of 17. She did a tour of Mexico playing quite large venues, really? playing old blues songs with a banjo player. And that was when she was 17 years old. You know? yeah. So if you're going to do it, you've got to get, get be in there early, you know, getting experience, making mistakes and just getting on with it, really. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing, it, it's very odd. You know, I, I, I read this piece in The Times. Well, I noticed it, you know, that. Yeah, Sam Branson, here he is with his music career. And, of course, if you're the Times, like any other newspaper, they just can't resist a story like that, can they? You know, Because no. there's nobody writing it or publishing it or editing it thinks Sam Branson's career is likely to add up to anything at all. But for the moment, it's three pages in the newspaper, isn't yeah. it? You know, it's three pages involving a famous name and some nice pictures, you know. Well, they've and, automatically got your attention because of his dad, which is absolutely. both, both a wildly uh, useful and a massive hindrance. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, millstone round neck. But yeah, anyway. yeah. And what will those songs be about? I mean, are they songs about being in a hammock on a Caribbean island? I don't know, with a with a large chilled glass of rum beside you. I don't. I have no idea. That's the impression I'm getting of. <laughs> I, I I'm personally always fascinated by Richard Branson in the sense that you know you and I can remember when he first appeared. You know, as the the, the publisher of Student Magazine, yeah, and then I starting do. a kind of mail order records firm and so forth. Yeah, and and then the thing that amazes me, you know, he obviously ran a successful record, a retail operation and a, and a record company for a short period of time and then an airline. But in between, there's been so many businesses with the Virgin name on them that have, have founded. <laughs> well, the latest one, spectacular. I think he's pulled out his moonshot. Yes, now, absolutely. Because, I mean, because people were thinking, well, look, you tried one out and it just kind of collapsed back into the ocean. So I think it's very unlikely I'm going to sign up to that, really. <laughs> But no, he's had an awful lot of failure. So it's like the yeah, it's the venue as as space travel, isn't it? That, yes. You know, <laughs> that, uh, but it's it just got a, a remarkable ability to make people forget about that kind yeah. of thing. You know that they they don't look at that; they just think it's a is a you know succession of well, his uh, whole thing is upwards and onwards, isn't it? You know, it's kind of all breezy and optimistic and. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, my proudest moment in journalism is is, is when I said somebody needed a picture feature. I can't remember what magazine. Oh, and I I said just just Richard picks up women. Richard Branson picks up women. Yeah. Just, I said just Google Richard Branson picks up women, and you will find hundreds of pictures of Richard Branson picking up women at photo calls. He I'm did. not suggesting anything I'm toward. No, at all. just have them in his arms. Just, just women in, in stewardesses or whatever. That's right. <laughs> picked up, you know. Because I think it's yeah. kind of, it's kind of a nervous tick on his be on his part. You know yeah. what I mean? Somebody points a camera at him and thinks I've got to I've got to do something. I've got to have a woman in my arms. <laughs> so there you are. Anyway, uh, and surely none of that will attach to Sam Branson, who will no doubt go on to make fools of us all and be absolutely. I'm adult. sure he will. We wish him well. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit 
from this next bit. The other thing that uh, everybody's been celebrating in the streets uh, of the UK in the last week is the good news that Jamie Oliver has finally got round to writing a children's book. You know, I thought I thought he'd never do it. Um, it's taken a long time because it apparently... The sky is black with hats. Isn't it? <laughs> He's been dictating... What we've been waiting for. He's been dictating it because... Uh, there's a, you know because he was problems with dyslexia he's been dictating it let me tell you dictating books is dead easy writing them is really hard you know absolutely i, I think a lot of that is just getting trying to get around the heavy lifting anyway this suggested to me there could be a stack waddy in this mark ellen so oh. i'm going to spring on you oh go on this is good a stack waddy these are rock stars who've written children's fiction. Okay. Oh, my Lord. Brilliant. Okay. Are you yeah, ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of these is a ringer. One of them, okay. but the rest, and I've got like six it. of them. Okay. So here we go. The first one is If Dogs Run Free by Bob Dylan. If Dogs Run Free by Bob Dylan. The second one is The English Roses by Madonna. The English Roses by Madonna. The third one is Happy by Pharrell Williams. Happy by Pharrell Williams. The fourth one is Neverland by Michael Jackson. Neverland by Michael Jackson. The fifth one is Stories for Ways and Means by Nick Cave and Tom Waits. And finally, Gus and Me by Keith Richards. Gus and Me by Keith Richards. Six... Children's book. Well, are you saying that, that only one of those is fake? Only one of those My is fake. God, there that's you go. Really difficult. <laughs> okay. And that it's... is genuinely hard. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, what the f? are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. God, okay. Well, look, don't, don't rush me. I mean, I'm telling you that the English Roses by Madonna is, is, is real because I can remember it coming yep. out. Yeah, I'm having to assume that Happy by Pharrell Williams would be because it's such a brilliant publishing opportunity in the wake of the success of that record. So I'm saying that must be true. Yep. Um, I, I Gus and Me by Keith Richards. 
I, 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 for, I, for some reason, I think that happened too, actually. It um, did. It did. Yeah, and I, 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 I'm not quite sure why or indeed who Gus was. Um, the, the, the Nick Cave, de- uh, that definitely happened. Is it Stories for Ways and Means, was it? Yeah, by Nick Cave I'm and Tom I'm fairly White. sure the Nick Cave happened. It did. Because he's written about all sorts of subjects and all sorts of different publications. So that leaves only two, I think, which is... <laughs> If Dogs Run Free Neverland, by Bob Dylan. Neverland and If Dogs Run Free by Bob Dylan. Yep. Well, I... I Come I'm on, gonna, get on with I'm, it. I'm going to suggest that it's the, 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 it's, it's the Dylan that's the ringer, If Dogs Run Free. Well, you'd be just, wrong because there is a no, Bob Dylan book called If Dogs Run Free, no which is for children. The, the ringer is Michael Jackson's, Jackson's Neverland. Neverland. No, fair enough. I should have gone for that. <laughs> so I couldn't believe it. I, I, I just started looking yesterday afternoon and I started looking you know, at musicians who have written children's books. There's thousands of them. I'm surprised you haven't got Grand Dude by Paul McCartney. Well, uh, Paul McCartney, that, that's his second one. Oh, I that's right. Yeah. And it, it's just, you know, they're just unashamed brand extensions, aren't they? Clearly. Completely. And clearly, in the majority of cases, they had nothing to do with rock to them at all. No, it's just, I'm sure they didn't. Just somebody said, oh, a thousand dollars here for, you know, putting your name on a children's book or something. Would you like oh, to God, do that? Oh, God, yeah. Well, in America, there's been one by there's been Mariah Carey did one, J-Lo. Reese oh, Witherspoon, Dolly Parton, Barack Obama, Kelly I, Clarkson. I mean, it's just absolutely anybody. And why not? It's just, uh, you know, the, the guaranteed publicity value is absolutely enormous. And also, people like the idea they're going to connect with a, another side of this famous person's personality. See them as a, in a kind of parental or avuncular mode. But except, except the interesting thing is that, you know, small children, or the kind of children who get children's books bought for them, don't care about famous people. No, no, not remotely. They just care about the story. No, it's the parent market. Yeah, absolutely. Parents think we love Jamie Oliver. I'm sure, you know, the, 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 my five year old will too, precisely. So who God, will it be next? Doing. Who will it be next? Stay tuned. The Word Podcast, two cocoa tins and a piece of string. And it's time for Any Other Business. And once again, we're joined by Alex Gold. How are you doing, Alex? Hello, I'm very well. How are you guys? I'm very well. well. Do you bring us news of new Patreon supporters? I do. Whatever the collective noun for a group of patrons is, we have that. A blessing. A blessing. blessing. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, so um, first of all, Doug Grant. Doug Grant. Well, Doug Grant was briefly a member of Creedence Clearwater Revival, and then he was... Uh, yeah, in the rhythm in, section. Yes. <laughs> he was. He was <laughs> called up into the military and uh, had a very distinguished career and and now runs a huge software company in California. And spe- sells his own brand of, uh, of Czech shirts as well. <laughs> very, very lucratively. Own brand of lumberware. Good. <laughs> lumberware. Nice yeah. to hear from you, yeah, Doug. Like nice to have you along, Doug. Carry on, Alex. Next we have Chris Young. Chris Young. Young. Oh, mm. gosh. But spin bowler? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Chris Slow Young. left arm. Slow yeah. left arm. Googly's a speciality. Play for Hampshire. Yep. <laughs> yes. And uh, thin, thin moustache at one point. <laughs> football moustache, 11 aside. <laughs> Very nice. Nice to have you along, Chris. Yep. 
Okay, next up, you go to town on this, boys. Howling Dick. <laughs> oh, my God almighty. Howling Dick is a patron supporter of, uh, of the Word in Your Ear uh, podcast. Who's, uh, you know, Does he work invent- in insurance? <laughs> he's, invented, <laughs> he's invented the name Howling Dick oh, to dear. cover up the fact he that he's... Cr- n- his name is really Chris Smith or something. That's right. <laughs> and one thing we can guarantee is he, he is a he. He's not a she. Absolutely. Yes. But nice to have you along, Dick. Let's talk about other dicks in rock. Do you remember... Dick Manitoba. Handsome Dick Manitoba. Handsome Dick Manitoba. <laughs> to give him his full name. Of the of the Dictators. dictators. Of, of the you Dictators. Always looked a bit like, uh, looked a bit like uh, Ian Hunter from Mott the Hoople. Yeah. And then, the the, then there's our friend uh, and uh, previous word in, word in Your Ear guest and distinguished video director Nigel Dick, yep. who, who still sends me a Christmas card every year, has done for years, oh, and they always involve guy. a play on the expression, on, on, on the word Dick. So <laughs> Dick at Nigel's desk. He used to send me his sign-off, used to be, we first knew it was a PR at Stiff Records in the early 80s. And he used to sign himself the dick at Nigel's desk, didn't he? That's, yeah, but you, you, you only got two options if you're born called Dick. You either you either change your name or you embrace it warmly. Absolutely. <laughs> and he did the latter. So are there any other dicks in rock? I'm trying to think. Apart from Dick Manitoba and Nigel Dick, I can't immediately think, think of any. There's probably, there's people at the back of the class right now going, Sir, 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 I know one, I know one. Well, email us and let us know because I can't think of one I think right there was now. one in Gong, but I can't remember now. Oh, it can well be. Okay, is that it? It's not. We have four annual patrons. Oh, Oh, great. Yeah. They'll be in for the birthday specials. If you subscribe annually, you get 15% off your subscription, which is obviously worth it. And they are uh, Dave Dye. Dave Dye. Dave Beaky and Mick Antu. (laughs) Yeah, good. (laughs) Bring the whole gang. If you could only find the other members, you know, you could probably... Reformed Dave D. Dozy Wicken. Yeah. 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 Very Uh, nice to have you along, Dave. Go on. Richard Knights. Richard Knight. Just Richard Knight. Knights. Knights plural. As knights. Yeah. That's an extraordinary name. Are you sure about that? As as in many, many suits of armor. Right. Right. Mm. Well, yes. Very nice to have you along, Richard. I can't think of anything right now. Anthony Camito. How are we spelling the K, the, the second name? Uh, C-O-M-I-T-O. All right, so we're saying of Italian extraction, possibly. I think he sounds like a football player. Yes. I think Camito, I think he's probably, don't you think? He's, yeah, an Italian, Italian winger, possibly. Yeah, tricky Italian winger. Nice yeah. to have you along, Anthony. <laughs> and finally, last but not least, Kevin Sharkey. Kevin oh, Sharkey. That's, uh, yeah, but he's obviously uh, a member of Pig Bag. Uh, <laughs> member of Pig Bag. Probably got his own trombone. Is that right, Kevin? Yeah, you do, don't you? Um, can, I, can I just uh, just uh, put in there and suggest that Richard Knights is, is a property guru? Oh, right, okay. okay. Good. Yes. Yeah, he's do- he actually does a very successful podcast himself where he gives people advice in uh, about property deals um so uh, listen in whatever shape or form we're very glad those people are here because Indeed. it's oh, thanks to them grateful. that we're in a bit in the in a position uh, to continue 
and uh, and to mount things like Word in Your Park, which again, let me remind you, takes place on June the 3rd at Holland Park in London. One thing Mark didn't mention, actually, we talked about it earlier, which is the great magical thing about Word in Your Park, which is this. It starts at 2 o'clock and it finishes at 4.30. It's so it's, it doesn't. The rest call. of the day is yours. You can do <laughs> stuff before. You can do stuff after. It's a little intermission. Absolutely. And we'll afterwards coming from out of town. Have plenty of time to go home. And afterwards, we'll be going to the pub. So if you want to join us, you know, you're, you're very welcome to do that. So anyway, tickets. How to get tickets? Uh, details below this podcast. Did you see the couple who got married at the Taylor Swift concert? I did. I did. I thought it was fantastic. They'd, 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 impl- they'd got 12 mates, I think, to help them make sure they bought front row tickets. That was the anxiety. They wanted to be have front row tickets, which they paid $1,000 each for. And having got there with their maid of honour, they conducted a wedding ceremony, a ceremony and genuinely got married in the front row of the Taylor Swift concert in Arizona. And there was a brilliant piece about it saying something like... Uh, uh, Taylor Swift was at our wedding, but she probably wasn't aware she, of it. She couldn't uh, know. have known that somebody was getting married in the front row. Although, of course, they did dress up. You know, the bride had the full, uh, the full, uh, full dress on. What a great idea! It's lovely, isn't it? It's a first, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and it'll probably last longer than the other wedding that I can think of. The marriage will probably last longer than the other wedding I can think of that took place in a big concert. Which was Sly Stone, do you remember? Oh, Sly yes. Stone married, is it Kathy Sylvester, I think? Yeah. God, this is years ago. 72, yeah. 73, or whatever. Married her, Alex. And this may come as a shock to you, to okay. your young sensibility. <laughs> he married her on stage at Madison Square Garden wow. in the middle of a concert. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Gosh. <laughs> Actually what? married. And this is like the early 70s, so yeah, uh, it's even more extraordinary, you know, whereas nowadays people get married all kinds of places, don't they? They didn't back then. Not know. then. Did they that get... last? No. 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 Did it but... last till the next gig? Did they manage to survive the, the back, backstage after show party without uh, having a massive domestic? So, yeah, so the proposal was to get married on stage and she must have looked at it and thought, sounds a bit risky, but it's sly, so it's it's worth a try. As an audience member, wouldn't you feel a bit shortchanged by that? You know, the concert that you paid good money to go and see being being interrupted by an actual wedding. You were there at this one-off event. Yeah, absolutely. You You saw Sly Stone. You were were at Sly Stone's wedding, in fact. Yeah, you know. You talk about that for the rest of your life. You've had your money's worth. That's good. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. And we also include in this podcast a couple of birthday guests who came in with uh, each one with a, with, a, with, a, with a, a conversational log to chuck on the fire. And the first of those was Stephen Lamb. And this is Stephen's question. And we are joined by our birthday guest, Stephen Lamb. Stephen, happy birthday. And Thank you very much. What is your, what is your point? What is your, your conversational log you want to toss on the fire? It's a slightly esoteric one, really. It's I'm not sure whether this is about child psychology or about pop music. Or um, I was thinking, I I've always had this group of songs. They they're all hit singles. They kind of exist in almost in a different part of my brain, and I've never quite been able to explain it. I can tell you what some of them are. If that's Go on. A, uh, so, uh, they include. I love the sound of breaking glass by Nick Lowe. Mm-hmm. 
Fantasy by Earth, Wind and Fire. Airport huh? by The Motors. Oh, yeah. Um, Run for Home by Lindisfarne. That's just, huh? it's about 12 of them in, in, in total. Uh, so and I, I realised um, that these, you know, it's not just a question of loving them. It's more that they almost exist outside pop music. So I looked into when they were released. And it turns out they were all released in the first half of 1978. I was going to say, they're all the same time, aren't they? Yeah. So they all kind so of How straddled. old would you have been? Because the key thing here, surely, is some kind of adolescent moment when your tastes change. How old would you have been? Exactly. It's, it, I, that, they would have straddled my 16th birthday. Ah, oh, right. Well, there we are. Um, so I'm 61 now. So they would have straddled that. So it, I, I was wondering, is this a thing? Do other people go through this? It's the point when pop music becomes stops becoming a kind of a nice noise. Because I used to buy singles before then. I remember buying singles when I was 12 or 13. Donny Osmond and Abba and stuff. So, but, but is there a point where music suddenly becomes important and the obsession starts, which is what brings me here now, really? Or is it... Or, or am I just a bit weird? Really? No, 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 no. I think I think that's a kind of adolescence thing. It's like the way your taste changed. That suddenly things that seemed repulsive before, like eating Stilton, suddenly <laughs> seem quite understandable. Do you know what I mean? Alcohol used to taste and appear horrible. Suddenly it seems terribly attractive, and your tastes just shift, don't they? I, yeah. I mean, I had the same thing with with Bob Dylan. I had the same thing with the Beatles. You know, before that was pop music, and with the Beatles, it was pop music, and then the Beatles started to produce more complicated, more three-dimensional music as I was suddenly going through that thing myself. So it was perfect for me. You must have had equivalents, Dave. I suppose so. I suppose it reminds me, is it the old Cat Stevens song, The First Cut is the Deepest? Yeah. (laughs) It's that stuff makes an impression on you. At an age where you're you're experiencing loads of things for the first time, you're experiencing the adult world for the first time, aren't you? Really, um, yeah. you're you're dealing with things for yourself in the, for the first time. You're probably having boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever, yeah. for the same I time. Wish. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, or even thinking about it. Oh, yeah, thinking yeah. About and it. so and so when you think. In those days, how capable you were of just sitting in your room and thinking that the world absolutely revolved around you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, pop music was all part of that, wasn't it? Do you know what I mean? It was. I mean, they were all hit singles, but the, the, the songs are all quite an eclectic bunch. Yeah. So I know in past podcasts, I've tended to bang on about Yes and progressive rock quite a lot. But that was also the period when I when my when I started getting interested in that in that kind of stuff. Absolutely, because prog rock doesn't make any sense until you hit adolescence. No, <laughs> no. it just doesn't make any sense. It's just a noise, and yeah. then suddenly it becomes something that you can evaluate because your your way of thinking has changed completely. Yeah, and I, I heard a song by Yes, which kind of blew my mind. And it was around, again. It was around about then. So, yeah. I, when was that? Sorry, sorry to talk about your ages. But when would <laughs> when would that have been for you two? Do you think? Well, I well, suppose I, it's probably around about the same, same age. I suppose really, it's just a change of your life, isn't it? You know that you are. You know, it's like you graduate from cowboys and Indians to to sort of uh, rock groups, and they kind of occupy a very similar space in your life, yeah. really. That they're. They're a vehicle for fantasy a lot of the time. You know, I I am not ashamed to say, because I know that absolutely everybody listening to this will have had gone through the same thing. I've stood in front of wardrobe mirrors 
pretending to be a member of Name Your Own Pop Group. We all and, per- and performed entire concerts on in real rackets. time. You know what I mean? Involving tennis rackets or knitting needles or God knows whatever household implements were to, to hand, <laughs> purely in order to pretend to be Steve yeah. Howe or whoever, yeah. just very much in the way <laughs> I pretended to be Billy the Kid 10 years earlier. It's I wouldn't say it's entirely a boys thing, but it certainly is a boys thing. You know, it's not exclusively so, um, and it's a way of kind of getting ready for life, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. The thing that always interested me about these songs, for instance, one of them is "Fantasy" by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, now I, I love Earth, Wind, and Fire, but <clears throat> that song, there's no other Earth, Wind, and Fire song that feels the same to me. "Fantasy" is in a completely different pocket, right? And it's to do with, and it must be to do with that time and a kind of shift in my, the way I was thinking about uh, about life. It's it's odd because. I can't really explain it in any other way. It's just a kind of feeling that I remember from... Boy to man. Boy to man, yeah. yeah. And you will never again feel about records yeah, the way you time. feel about the records. <clears throat> sorry, 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 say again. You can never again yeah. feel about records the way you felt about records when you were 16. Which is, no, which is no, why that we're, we're so besotted still <clears throat> with all the records that we heard when we were that age that's <clears throat> because they make such an enormous exactly. impression i think yeah, yeah. and you want to very another quick question, another quick question which is related to what you just said david <clears throat> but i'm going to bring it back to yes again sorry last year you were talking about the and uh, the 50th anniversary of close to the edge right and uh the two of you were having had a little discussion about it, it was last summer time <laughs> and you were talking about it david and uh, <laughs> and um uh, but you never said what you thought about it. Uh, oh, I don't, I don't. Mark said something disparaging. <laughs> I, it's really funny. I listened to it again not that long ago, just oh, out of curiosity, yeah. uh, when it was 50 years. I yeah, did yeah, listen to it again. Yeah. And I don't like it as much as I like other, yeah, I like earlier Yes albums. I, I like I like the Yes album. I, I like the first two albums, you know. That was... Yes, end of my life. I used to hear them. They used to, oddly enough, do lots of Radio 1 sessions. They did. But not kind of evening. They were very often during the day. And the reason, do you know the reason for this? Okay. I've done some research on this. Because they rehearsed like mad, Yes did. Long before they went on the road, they really rehearsed the mm. early version of Yes. They did. They, they had a managed by a guy who had a disco, I think, or they had Roy some Flynn. place. They had some place to go and rehearse, and so they did. Consequently, Radio 1 producers could hire them to do a session for the Dave Lee Travis show at lunchtime and know that they would get three numbers out of it. And also, yes, were sufficiently commercially savvy to make sure that one of those numbers was something's coming from West Side Story or Paul Simon's America. Tunes that the Radio 1 audience would kind of know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I've always been really attached to that side of yes. No, I get that completely. Yeah. So by the time you get close to the edge, they've gone they've gone off. I, I think go oh, get back to a tune we know. You know, that's yeah. that's part of what I feel. But it it, it hasn't uh, it hasn't uh, you know harmed yes no, in me. any way. You know, no, no, no. no. The fact that that I, I just I'm just intrigued because you because you didn't say what you thought about right. it. The discussion moved on. Oh, I was right. sitting there thinking. Oh, no, he doesn't. He didn't say what he thought about it. Oh, well. 
I'll uh, ask him next year. Uh, well, well <laughs> I had a say, phase with Yes when they used to turn the lights on and off, didn't they, Dave? When he played I the did. Yeah, yeah, to simulate yeah. the idea of a light show. So, yeah, we used to love them. And uh, still, still some fondness. Oh, yes, yeah, definitely fondness, yeah. definite fondness. Well, look, lovely to talk to you, Stephen. And you. Um, uh, thank you for your continued support. Uh, and uh, my pleasure. We look forward to seeing you on birthday next year. Yes, thank you very much. I'll see you next, see you next year. See you next year. Bye. Bye bye. Bye. That's Stephen Lamb, one of our birthday Patreon supporters. And uh, we didn't mention, actually, a couple of other things that we've done over the last week is we spoke to the extraordinary John Otway. And that is out there as a. We read a flick book (laughs) of of the time he fell off the amplifiers and old grey whistle test. It was really entertaining. And I tell you, it's lovely to talk to people who are kind of 40 year, 40 year, more than 40 year veterans of the music business who are not bitter at all. Not remotely, nothing to be bitter. He's intensely grateful about everything. Yes, absolutely. He's lucky to have got away with it. Yeah. Uh, and also this week, you've talked to uh, John Cooper Clark, who's Clark setting brilliant. out on tour soon. Yeah. One of our Word Down Your Way chats, where we talk to um, performers who are about to tour, uh, giving notice of what they're going to be doing on their tours. So, uh, John Cooper Clark never, never lost for words. Is that still no, the case? He's, uh, he's so funny and so, so just relentlessly entertaining. And also, I think he's written one of the greatest, I Want to Be Yours, his memoir, one of the greatest memoirs I think I've ever read in my life. Could not be more heartily recommended. It's fantastic. So, uh, and now our second Patreon uh, birthday boy, once again, is a much-valued subscriber and supporter in, in the United States of America, Chuck Lonson, all the way, ladies and gentlemen, from Savannah, Georgia. Here's his log on the fire. Okay, we're joined by birthday boy Chuck Lonson, um, longtime friend of the pod and valued Patreon supporter. Hello, Chuck. Chuck's in uh, Chuck's in Savannah, Georgia, probably in a courthouse. In a courthouse, right I think. On the correct <laughs> side of a courthouse. Let me remind. <laughs> Not on the business end. Yes, purely yes. in a professional uh, capacity. I always tell people when they ask me how was court today i said as long as i get to leave by the same door i came in it's a good day that's a very (laughs) good line so chuck what's your log that you'd like to throw on the fire well i had something bubbling in my mind for a while which was a compilation album that i really love and you gentlemen have been talking about compilations and the various themes compilation albums can have um, recently, and you even alluded to once or twice songs on this compilation, which kind of surprised me. Uh, so I started thinking about what are my favorite compilation albums, and you know, there's one obvious one. Oh, obviously, that's mine. Deep, deep 70s is obviously one, but uh, there was one other that yours reminded me of. I don't know if y'all are familiar with this. Is there were three separate albums Matthew Sweet and Susanna Hoffs, uh, formerly of the Bangles. In 2006, 2009, and 2013, put out compilation albums called Under the Covers. One was all 60s, one was all all 70s, and one was all 80s. And I've got the combination of all three. So it was really, it's it's fun to listen to. But as I compared their 70s disc to David Hepworth's 70s disc, 
there is one. So this is a mini quiz. There was one song that you had in come. Oh, Ralph Cowell, I couldn't possibly. Well, it's hard to narrow Give me a clue. Give me a clue. I will. I'll I'll give you a multiple choice. Go on. And think of who's singing. So Delaney and Bonnie's uh, Only You Know and I Know. Right. Or Big Star, Back of the Car. Yeah. Carly Simon, Anticipation. Or Little Feet, Trouble. And I will say that they did songs by most of those groups, but perhaps not the one I named. Which do you think you have in common? Well, I'm going to say Big, big star. star. I'm saying Big Star too, because they were kind of fashionable at that time with among those kind of people. So we're both saying Big Star. Are we wrong? We're both correct. Very oh, good. there you go. You see, they Big Star are a classic, classic case of Big Star. When they were around, nobody knew anything about them at all. Not at all. It all happened like, 10, 20, 30 years later, didn't it? It's like Nick Drake. Be, like Nick, just like Nick Drake. Exactly the same. They would be excellent for one of your deep dives, I think, because they're endlessly fascinating. And I, I've been listening to them a lot lately. I even have two more big star compilations by various stars who love them. Um, but they just get better every time I listen. You know the famous story about Big Star and the Rock and Roll Writers Convention? Do you know about this? Where they, I've heard about the convention. They, yeah. they flew in people from all over the world. And they, they, they put out their first album. They had no take-up at all. They had no natural fan following. Whenever they played around Memphis, people didn't like them, really. And then they flew in these, these people from all over the world, including Pete Frame from Zigzag and I don't know, Lester Bangs and whatever, all these people. And they put on a show, and then uh, and the dance floor was full of badly coordinated gen- white gentlemen in their thirties who were all rock critics who loved Stained them. T-shirts. And yes, they thought, that was their these, entire audience. Was these are our people. These yeah. are our people. And that proved to be the case, didn't it? You know, the people who like the, the the width of the big stars record collection. That was what it was, wasn't it? <laughs> said, oh, I recognise all the uh, all nodding sagely at each other and tapping their noses. Oh yes, you know, perfect. So, do you know well, what the biggest challenge for the compilation album is in this day and age, Chuck? What is that? It's the fact that cars no longer have CD players in them. True. This is a, this is a huge issue, you know. I I I buy lots of used CDs because I still have a CD player, and you know I've subscribed to Pandora and 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 uh, the other one, Spotify. But unless I'm specifically thinking of that album, I don't know to go to it. But if no. I look at my rack of yeah. CDs, you see them, and as much you see it, and it reminds you. And as much driving as I do, I'll grab about 20 at a time and get through them on a trip or something. I love it. But uh, the compilation that I wanted to talk to you about, which is my favorite, and I had lost it for a while, for a couple years, found it back about a year ago. Y'all have alluded to one of the songs on it when you were talking about Sun Ra, about the Pink Elephants on Parade. And is this one called Stay Awake. Is this Hal Wilner? That's the Hal Wilner Disney songs from Disney films, and it is a fantastic compilation. It's got uh, Bonnie Raitt doing "Baby Mine." It's got Los Lobos doing the "I Want to Be Like You" from Jungle Book. Fantastic. Uh, Tom Tom Waits doing "Hi Ho Hi Ho" off the work. Of oh, yes, of course, of course. NRBQ, Harry Nilsson, 
Ringo Starr, of course, doing When You Wish Upon a Star. But it is a great, great compilation, themed compilation. And my, oh, and uh, of course, Sinead O'Connor doing Someday My Prince Will Come. Yes. Uh-huh. It's oh, such a clever idea, isn't it? Because everyone has a real emotional connection to songs that were on Disney films that they saw. <clears throat> and uh, people it's, that it's they like. It's funny about movie. the Funny you say that, Mark, about the connection, because when I first moved back to Savannah about 30 years ago, I had seen The Replacements several times in Washington, D.C., in big auditoriums. Right after I moved back to town, I got a call from a friend going, hey, The Replacements are playing this little club downtown. They are between shows in Atlanta and Jacksonville, and they wanted some place to play. So they played at a little 200-person club. So I got there early. I was standing right up against the stage in front of where Paul Westerberg would be. The set list was right there in front of me. So I read it, a bunch of songs I liked, but there was one song I wanted to hear off of here that was not on the set list. So at one point between songs, as Westerberg looks down at the set list, my face is right there. We make eye contact. And I said, Cruella DeVille. Ah. And he, he started shaking his head. And big smile came across his face. He goes, yeah, yeah. And he turns to the band and he says, let's do Cruella DeVille. And they launched into it, and it was fantastic. That's fantastic. Is that, that was, what is that from 101 Dalmatians? Dalmatians. 101 Dalmatians. I don't think I know that song. Oh, it's Cruella DeVille. It, it is on Spotify. Scare you, so. no evil thing will. It's fantastic. Oh, you know the words. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's great. Like so go on Spotify and listen to Stay Awake. It is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, well, oh, well. That's very right. good. I'll very good. You, I'll get you quickly to the stack wadi. Right. Go we'll on. to stack wadi. Come on. Go on. Yes. So uh, a while back, I sent you gentlemen an email asking if I was really seeing Little Feet when I went to see Billy Payne, Sam Clayton, um, Kenny Gradney, is that really Little Feet? And every and a friend of mine here goes, "Oh, that's a that's a tribute band." I'm <laughs> like, "That's not a tribute band. It's got Ouch. actual real members. Tribute bands are something different." And I'd mentioned to Alex a few months ago I'd gone to see Bill Berry's new band's record release party in Athens, and one of the opening acts was Mark's old favorite Pylon. Oh yeah, but it's not really Pylon. It's only Vanessa, the lead singer, and some new players. So they don't build themselves as Pylon. They build themselves often initialized as PRS, but they are the Pylon Reenactment Society. Oh, very good. That's very good. That's a better. That's a better way of calling. But on my way to work, most days I pass a sports bar here. They have a music area in the back, and they get a lot of these tribute, actual tribute bands, and they always try and have some clever name based on the act that they are um, tribute to. And so I'm going to give you eight names. And one okay. of them's made up. So it? these are all tribute acts, two, right? I'll, I'll go two of them are made up. Go on. All right, okay, go on. All right, so you it's a two-step stack line. So I'll right. give you the tribute band name. You tell me who they are tribute to. All right, okay. Right, which God. two are made up. All right. And there's even one band repeated, so I'll give you that hint. So band number one is Departure. Band number yeah. two is the These Crowded Streets. Band number three is Seven Bridges. Band number four is Freebird. <laughs> Got that one. Band yeah, number five is Thrill. 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 Mm-hmm. Band number six is Dead Letter Office. 
Oh, and I got that one. Band number seven is Three Steps. Mm. And band, actually, two bands are okay. Band number eight is Remakes. Remakes. Uh, remakes. And the spelling. Well, Dead Letter Office is REM, isn't it? Definitely. Correct. Because they put a compilation album out called Dead Letter Office. Freebird uh, is, is clearly Leonard Skinner. Thrill? Correct. Did you say thrill? I said thrill. It, it, it's not Steely Dan, is No. Oh, oh right. Steely Dan. Oh, is that, is that no? No? Who's that? Nope. Thrill is Rush. Uh, okay, Three Steps uh, sounds like a, a, an Eddie Cochran. Would it be an Eddie Cochran tribute act? No? What do you think, Mark? No, I don't know. I don't know. No? Three Steps is Leonard Skinner. All right. Okay. The song gave me three steps. All right. Of course. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Uh, departure? No, I don't know. Go on. Just can't tell you that one. Departure is Journey. Um, oh, okay. There's another uh, Journey tribute band named uh, Voyage. Yeah. Uh, these Crowded Streets? Well, it's not these Them Crooked Vultures, and it's not Crowded House, so I, I really couldn't tell. Who is that? That is Dave Matthews' band. It's from an album of theirs, something beyond these crowded streets. Oh, all right. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Seven Bridges should be fairly easy. I don't know. Go on, Seven Bridges. Go on. Japan. The Eagles. Oh, the Eagles. Oh, is that? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> of course. And the last one there, Remakes, and the spelling matters. Oh, how do Roxy Music? No. Well, the first three letters. Oh, R-E-M, R-E-M, all right. Oh, very okay. good, oh, Very good. All right. Well, six of those are real. Two are not. Oh, God. And I will say two are not. I Googled to try because it possibly could be, but I couldn't find one. Remakes must be real. That's a very good one. I, all right. One, I, I'm yeah. saying Dead Letter Office is not real. The ones that are not real are Thrill. Right. Okay. And three steps for Leonard Skinner. Oh, wow. all right, okay. Well, that was tough. That was a so challenge, the, was it, Dave? So those they're are still available if anybody's yes. looking for. Uh, if anybody's <laughs> yes. in the market Anyone for in uh, the area, yeah, yeah. For, uh, valuable work. Desperate to see a, a, a Leonard Skinner uh, tribute. That's funny. Some are so easy. I didn't put them in like No Oasis for Oasis. Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. Live plays or Coldplay. That's right. The one. The one I wanted to put in there was Furry Psychos. Furry Psychos? Who's that? Furry Psychos for the psychedelic fur. Oh, right. Oh, okay. Oh, God. God. It's a whole world, isn't it? It is. It's that a is whole a world. Huge, incredible number of tribute bands. I would say, well, I noticed there's a, a pub near me. They, they stopped having, uh, you know, kind of cute punning names. They just, you just go past the poster saying, Tina Turner. Queen, yeah, whatever. Then, then it says to tribute to in very little letters. <laughs> didn't even right bother matter. doing that, you know. No, that, no. that was that was the name of the game. Well, Chuck, nice yeah. to nice to catch up with you. And Thank you. Very good to see you, and see you probably on the quiz. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.